Parliament is full of larger-than-life characters, but some loom larger than others. During her 15 years in Parliament, Matidia Tude became one of our most admired Māori politicians, respected by both the left and right. Her dramatic exit from Parliament during the 2017 election upset many. But Matidia's story is not a Shakespearean tragedy, it's one of resilience. Kia ora. I'm Morgan Godfrey. I'm a blogger, writer and commentator, and I'm fascinated by New Zealand politics. Now, I'm speaking with former Māori MPs in Mātangirea, Parliament's historic Māori Affairs Committee room. I want to understand their place in our history and what we can learn from their political legacies. This is Mātangirea. Matidia Tude was first elected to Parliament in 2002 as a list MP for the Green Party. She served as the party's female co-leader from 2009 to 2017. How does it feel to be back? Do you feel emotional about that? <laughs> it's a bit weird. It's been nearly two years since um, I was last here, so yeah. But it's, you know, I was here for a long, long time. I know this place really well. I wonder what it was like for you when you first came to this house in 2002 as an MP. Mm -hmm. What was that transition like, you know, when you first walked into the house? How did it feel to come from your background as a single mum who put herself through law school and then arriving in Parliament like that? How did that feel? Uh, I had never been here before, before I actually turned up to work here, so it was really odd. But I guess because I hadn't worked here, but I'd been in, you know, the protest movement, that sort of stuff, and um, it kind of felt like a place that could be tackled, mm. if that makes sense. So I didn't feel particularly intimidated by it. I didn't really know what I was doing. It took a while to figure out what the job was, but um, the institution itself wasn't that as intimidating as it might be for somebody else, I think. I had been in court, for example, and it's really similar kind of process, so. Mm -hmm. As a protester or as a former activist, did you feel a little bit funny as if you were coming through the wrong door rather than being outside on the steps, now you're inside in the house? <laughs> yeah, and I kind of talked about that in, um, in my maiden speech, actually, about that, that feeling of definitely being on the outside and suddenly being on the inside. But I always knew why I was here, which was not to be absorbed by this place mm. and by the power here, but to tackle it. And, you know, I, for the time I was here, working here, I tried really hard to keep doing that and keep that kind of in the front of my thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah, in your maiden speech, I think you described not parliament, but the state as a cage. Yeah. Can you kind of walk me through what that means? <laughs> I still totally agree with, I still completely think that that's true. So this was um, from a conversation that Noam Chomsky had had, just to do name dropping, uh, where he talked um, with some anarchists about, uh, at, about their protests, which understood the state as a cage 
and an oppressive cage that prevented um, Indigenous people at that time from being able to um, fully express themselves and have their true freedoms um, and exercise their self-determination. But that the cage also had a protective element in that there were wolves outside the cage that uh, represented corporate power and that corporate power was also a real threat. And so those, the job of those of us on the inside of the cage is to do our best to widen the floor of the cage, um, to maximise our opportunities to be ourselves and to exercise our own power, to build the strength of our communities as best as we can while we are inside, so that when the time comes to dismantle the cage, we are ready to tackle any of the threats that sit outside. I just want to go back a little bit further now. When you were growing up, did you ever actually imagine that you would become a parliamentarian? No, no, I was going to be a solid gold dancer. <laughs> because Atia was awesome. Um, no, no, nothing like this. Uh, the, I think the only reason um, I ended up thinking that this was possible was because of the trajectory from being involved in the protest movement, unemployed rights protest movement in the 80s, um, and then transitioning into law. Once that happened, it just seemed that uh, skilled up, we can take on power and authority um, once you've got the skills to do it. And uh, there's been lots of examples of that. It's not just, you know, it's a common experience, but um, until you have those skills and you can see how you can tackle authority structures, it's really hard to imagine that you would ever have a place in, mm. in a sort of environment like this. When she entered Parliament, Today was a commercial lawyer for Simpson Grierson. But she'd already stood as a candidate for the McGillicuddy Serious Party and Aotearoa legalised cannabis. She had also been involved in social justice organisations. Do you feel like you picked up skills like that as well during your childhood? Were your parents political? Not particularly. Um, they were. They were very working class. They were very. Um, they held on to the values of whānau really, really strongly. You know, your responsibility to care for others, that if you've got something that can be shared, then you share it. Um, and, and so there's a really strong sense of kind of uh, responsibility and reciprocity and sharing and whānau that exists. That is a good value set and a good value base, I think, for doing work like this because it reminds you, keeps you grounded as to who you're connected to. Um, and who you belong to, even when you've got lots of trappings of kind of privilege and stuff that comes with a job like this one. I wonder about whether that shaped the work that you pursued in here as well. You're a big champion for child poverty. Mm. What were the sort of stories that you saw coming across your desk at that time? There was a lot going on for like a 10 year period. There was just a huge amount of work that was being done on child poverty. When Labor, um, uh, lost the election, you know, there was still a huge amount that hadn't been undone from when National had been in, you know, nine years before, right? So there'd been no reform, serious reform at all in the benefit system. Um, the minimum wage was still very low. Um, and uh, working for families had been the kind of big, big project for that, that particular Labour government, but had just um, widened the gap between families who were getting enormous, like, well, not enormous, but 
good support when they had jobs, but families who weren't just just because they were they they didn't have paid work, and so that disparity was growing. So um, all through those, particularly the national years, it just got more and more obvious. So there were groups like Every Child Counts and Bernardos, and it was just heaps of groups NGOs doing work on this um, child poverty action, and I think that. Um, it made sense for there to be a really strong political push for it. Um, you know, I had worked in the, you know, in terms of unemployed rights and stuff, and knew that sector really, really well. And it just seemed natural that we would be the strongest advocates and we try to put child poverty on the political agenda. And we did. I mean, there's no doubt about that. That it's just like we were the the number one political advocates for um, ending child poverty. And it was really, really hard work. Um, but then. All of those NGOs and organisations were doing incredible policy development. There was a huge body of information that we could use to really push the point. The problem was we had a government that didn't care. Like, I mean, I genuinely believe they just could not bring themselves to care. Why, I don't know. Um, and so they, they failed to act in the face of all the evidence that showed them how they could, um, which is why we're still in the same situation we are. Um, and how nothing has really moved... Um, yeah, over that 10-year period, I don't think. Mm, mm. There was never that appetite for the big structural change that's yeah. needed. I wonder about the politics of it as well, because whenever I hear the word child poverty, it's always always very funny framing, because the solution to child poverty is to focus not on the children but on adults. I know, yes, yes. Did you often push that... Was yes. that line of political thinking? Well, it was, I mean, I talked to a lot of different groups about this because it was a real question that, yes, the way to solve child poverty is to make sure their parents have decent incomes. And so it's family poverty that you're really talking about, not child poverty. But there was a lot of people um, were talking about it in the context of, well, how do we get cut through to the public? How do we make people realise that this is actually, has a, has a really serious effect on each individual child and that none of those children um, deserve the, the hardship that they're suffering. And, they, and much of the hardship is suffered by them. You know, the 15 kids who die every year because um, of poor housing, there is a real personal and direct effect of a failure to act. And we needed to find a way of making that real for New Zealanders as a whole. Mm. And so, Talking about child poverty made sense in that because we needed people to understand who was being affected the most. Mm. But it's certainly true that, yeah, it's family poverty that can be solved and should be solved and that that will then solve mm. child poverty. Mm. One way I think that you and the wider parliament, or at least the opposition at the time, pushed it into, into the public consciousness was with the Māori Affairs Select Committee mm. inquiry into child poverty. Can you walk us through what happened there? It was me and Louisa Wall, actually. I think we can give you a lot of credit for it, too. It was just another way of trying to get more information, um, both in and out, if you like, about the issue. The report itself was a highly politicised document. I don't know, <laughs> like, rereading it and thinking, oh, good Lord. I mean, it, it felt like that at the time, too, because mm -hmm. every word felt like it was being negotiated. Mm -hmm. It was negotiated. And you can definitely see... Me and it, I, and and my priorities, and you can see Louisa and sort of Labour priorities. You can certainly see national mm. um, uh, in the writing of it. But at least, um, again, it was a gathering of information that was particularly focused on Māori Fano, so we could have something that we could talk to to Fano and to you know politicians and other people about. So, mm, mm. yeah. 
Who was pu- who was pushing back in the National Party against that? <laughs> oh, there was just they weren't they were reluctant to um, allow the Ministry of Social Development um, and the Ministry of Health to provide information. So that was ministerial reluctance, mm. um, and and they had a just the, they had a very strong uh, you know um, personal responsibility agenda. Um, the biggest fight we had, well, that I remember having, was um, around um, young women and their right to be mothers, actually, um, and trying to make sure there was no overt criticism of um, young women or any kind of attempt to control the fertility of Māori women. Can you go into more detail about how <laughs> those yeah. people were trying to constrain the uh, fertility just around, of Māori women? Um, this was... I don't remember the timing exactly, but if you remember, Paula Bennett, who was Minister of Social Development, wanted to um, provide contraceptives to beneficiaries to stop them. You know, they put in the rules around requiring women to go to work early if they had a second child on the benefit, yeah, when the babies are one. And then, um, <laughs> and they also wanted to um, provide contraception. And it was all this, you know, it's all by choice and all that sort of stuff. But actually, you know, if you wins officer, Mm. who's got control of whether or not you're going to get your benefit that week, is um, asking you about your contraception, you know, you're under enormous pressure mm. to do as they ask. And that was a big policy fight that was being had, but I think some of some of that was kind of trying to be brought into the select committee and into the inquiry as a way of um, um, trying to restate a desire for... Um, Māori women in this case, mm. um, to have their fertility managed in some way. That's quite shocking to me hearing that. And do you think it is or was indicative of the racism in this place? Oh, yeah, mm. yeah totally. Um, and, uh, I mean, yes, it was absolutely indicative of that. And it was, these, these kinds of conversations are always couched in, uh, you know, what's best for health and for the health of that mother and for that, you know, it's, it's always couched. But the primary purpose is to control fertility. Italiana used to talk about this quite a lot. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's really true. And I think that we still see exactly that attitude being played out with the Oranga Tamariki's um, continual taking stealing of Māori babies off their mothers in hospital. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the fact that so many of our kids are being taken from families come compared to Pākehā kids, I think is part of the same mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's quite an interesting connection with other parts of your career, talking about Māori bodies um, and the control of Māori bodies, <laughs> yeah. especially in the, um, in the Tupapaku inquiry, mm. which you pushed, because mm-hmm. of all these... And I'll, I'll call them offences against, you know, the management of yes. Māori bodies. Yeah. Um, so that, that's something that you've been pushing for for a long time, isn't it? Improving, yeah. improving how the Crown deals with these things. I was at a tangi of my cousin um, and on the East Coast, and um, he had mongrel mob connections. And at the same tangi, at the same time, there was also a young man there who'd also had those connections. He was, I think, 16 or 17, and he'd been killed in a car crash. And so the two tangi were running at the same time on the same whare. Um And... During it, um, his uncle, the young man's uncle, came to talk to me about um, the real problems they'd had in getting his body. 
um, that you know it was really clear how he died, and so there was no need for you know any kind of inquest or anything. But he was being held at the funeral home, and the Fano couldn't go in, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let the Fano in. Um, he felt because they had Fano who was mongrel mob, um, and that this you know this appalling traffic accident that had killed their baby you know their baby boy at 16, 17, um, you know was just compounded by this complete disassociation from them, of them as a whanau um, during a really appalling period in their lives. So I was like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that can't be unusual. So I spent a bit of time asking other people and honestly, every Māori I talked to had a story. Yeah, so I worked on the idea of the inquiry for quite a long time, but it was actually when we were Māori Fairs members were in Tūruru's office and we were talking um, about bringing these photos in here and, uh, <laughs> and it was a really good conversation. Everybody was like on the same page about the photos. And so I mentioned it there about whether they would be keen on this inquiry. And again, it was just a flood of stories. Mm. Like they, <laughs> Marty and P's had stories that were really similar about, you know, people not being brought over from Australia. And it was just like full on. So it was really easy to get it through because it's such a common experience for us to have. Um, there's just such a cultural disconnect often. Um, I talked to coroners about it, um, about what they could and couldn't do, and realised that quite a lot of it was about um, people just not understanding the Māori way of do, doing stuff. Mm. You know, tikanga Māori just wasn't um, in their mind at all, and so they weren't even using the discretion they had to allow our whānau access. But um, the inquiry was really good in that it was clear that there needs to be much more explicit requirement for recognition of um, tikanga Māori, that whānau actually need to be told what their rights are, because there's a lot, they have lots of rights that they didn't know, and that um, even the people they were talking to, whether it was police or whatever, didn't know. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot more control that whānau have over their tupapaku than they realise, but they were just never told about it. In 2018, Parliament passed an amendment to the Coroner's Act, giving Māori greater access and control over the deceased bodies of their loved ones. It was a unifying cause for Māori MPs. I'm interested um, about Māori women because up until 1993, only three Māori women had ever sat in Parliament before and the numbers weren't that much better by the time you arrived in 2002. I wonder, at the time, was it lonely? It was probably a little bit lonely inside the caucus. I was the only Māori woman in the caucus for quite a long time. Um, um, actually, for, for a very long time. <laughs> but, um, but I think there was camaraderie between the Māori women here, parliamentarians, that was much easier to... Um, it was much easier to be, to be part of and to work with them. Um, there were times when we tried as a group of Māori MPs, I mean, you know, all of us, to get together and stuff, and it was very difficult to maintain that for long periods. We always, we always criticised for us that we couldn't actually get together to talk about stuff, but there's a lot of politics and fixed relationships and infects trust in a negative way. Um, and I think as Māori women, though, that we were able to trust each other more. Never, I never felt that anything I said with those Māori women outside of you know, the kind of argument of the parliament or the select committee, I never felt that anything I said to them would be used in some way against me. Yeah. Certainly felt I could always trust them. When you left parliament in 2017 and uh, Marama Davidson was in, in the Green Caucus, do you think that network of Māori women was, was still strong? Yes, and I think um, in part because there was significantly more Māori women 
you know, coming in at that point. And, you know, when Rahui was here, you know, she was really cool. She was really great to work with. Um, so, you know, there was, we'd all kind of slowly built. Those of us who'd been here for a while, we were building those relationships and keeping them. Um, you know, when uh, Louisa brought forward the proposal to have the photos of the queer in this room, Matangi Reya, you know, like there was a lot of support from that and there was a lot of other Māori women in Parliament who could support that too. So, you know, I think it did get better over time, but only as more and more Māori women got here. You mentioned before, for a long time, you were the only Māori MP in the Green Party. <laughs> yeah. um, and even when you became <laughs> leader, McCabe, was, yeah. yeah, until Māori became, you were still the only Māori MP. Did you often feel like there were constraints within the party because you were the only Māori MP? Oh, um, no, actually. The party was pretty good. And the real test of that was on the foreshore and seabed. If that had been different, it would have been much, much harder. But... Um, you know, on the foreshore and seabed issue, Jeanette and I worked really closely on it. We developed the Tuhawaka um, kind of policy approach, which is really biculturalism kind of, you know, in this particular political sense. Um, and, and when we put that, her and I put that policy to our party, they were resoundingly in support. Um, and, yeah, I remember the policy committee meeting where we talked about this, where it was when it was just starting, and um, the media came down and we're asking people, you know, what do you think and what do you think and are they doing the right thing? And nobody, nobody said that it was wrong to take this approach of actually supporting Iwi Māori in the process. Mm. And I was incredibly proud to have been part of a party that, you know, that was walking the, the kind of treaty journey, you know, which is long and you know really never-ending, um, and who were so incredibly supportive. And I was only, I'd only been in for a year. Mm. So they so it showed a lot of trust, I thought, by the party in me and in Jeanette and in the work that we're doing. Um, and so, yeah, I was mm. pretty stoked about that. When the foreshore and seabed hikoi arrived out here, out to the steps of Parliament, what side of the fence were you on? Oh, well, I was on the inside, actually. I'd been down to see them as they were coming up the road and then um, came back in, because I could, and out through the top doors. And when I did, Rod Donald, bless him, had gotten this big green banner that said, Honour the Treaty, and the MPs were standing on the steps with this giant green banner. I was just so stoked that he'd done that. And I had no idea. It was like a surprise. And... It was so good to be on this side, knowing that they had my back. I mean, mm. they really, really did. So what kind of part did Rod Donald play in that? Rod is a, as was an activist from way back as well, remember. So, you know, he, he knew what it was to be on the other side and to be fighting um, for something you really believe in. And he was, like, growing his own treaty knowledge too as time was going on. Um, and so, yeah, so he just... He was also really good at knowing when to pick his moments. <laughs> it was definitely one. Yeah. <laughs> was it a little bit terrifying though? When you walk out, when you walked outside the doors, twenty thousand Maldives on the <laughs> on the lawn. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like, oh my god, this is this is fierce as. But I knew that they knew that we were on on their side of this debate, and that as uh, inexperienced as I was as a politician that my analysis was right. Did you realise at the time that it was history making? So oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even at the time when the final decision came out and the government made the announcement about, you know, legislating and stuff, it was it was pretty clear then that this was um, an enormous opportunity for a genuine bicultural understanding to occur in the New Zealand law that had been just completely smashed to bits um, again. 
and um, for, for no good reason. Like, it, it was entirely manageable. But <laughs> from the state side, it was entirely manageable, but they just could not cope with the idea of iwi Māori having um, any kind of rights like this. I mean, it was just... Mm. Mm. They were still thinking with a colonised mind. At the time, Labour held all seven Māori seats. Māori voters were calling on their MPs to oppose the legislation. The pressure on them was immense. But at the end of the day, only Tariana Turia would cross the floor. What were your interactions with the Māori MPs at the time like? Did you feel sorry for them? Uh, yeah, I did. I did feel sorry for them in one respect, in that they were getting a heap of abuse and they were maintaining the party line. But I also just could not understand how they could do that in the face of what was so obviously wrong. Um, you know, I was new and uh, I was pretty committed to, you know, my position on it. Um, and I still think that perhaps if they had worked together in a different way, they may have been able to either achieve more or at least maintain the kind of stronger kind of tikanga approach to it. But, um, yeah, I, it was a mixture of feeling really pissed at them and really sorry for them and really frustrated that they, you know, weren't taking... Um, or that and sometimes actually engaging in some of the kind of attacks on the submitters and things. Mm-hmm. Um, which was really awful to watch and really unnecessary. When the Māori Party repealed the Foreshore and Seabed Act and put through the Marine and Coastal Areas Act, the Tokutai Moana Act, how did you feel about that? Oh, I, was, I, was, I could see what they were doing politically wise, but it meant nothing in reality. It was no different. Not in reality, it was no different. Um, I don't think they met their promise. But, I mean, this is me. They don't have to listen to me. They're their own party and... Um, they're entitled to their own views on it, but I just thought it, all you're doing is replacing one version with another version and it really doesn't make any difference. There's no, there's no less of a confiscation. Yeah, that ties into the Greens' position on treaty settlements, doesn't it? That treaty settlements aren't full and final no. and they don't address the actual confiscation. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Um, because one then they, they can't possibly be full and final and the actual restitution is so poor and... Um, it's really just a fraction of the resource taken that's returned. Um, and it's still on the Crown's terms. So, you know, they're still dictating the terms, including how much the restitution is. There's no real negotiation over the money. In the end, it doesn't deal with the key political question, which is the sharing of power. And that is why it can't possibly be full and final. Um, it's a, they, are, they are resource agreements but they don't, they don't properly deal with the treaty and its utility and, um, and its actual requirements, which is that there is a dual process here. There's a, there's a biopolitical process or, a, hmm. you know, whatever phrase you want to use. Yeah, yeah. There's Moana Jackson's beautiful quote about treaties aren't settled, treaties are honoured. And that's yes, something, yes, that, something the yeah. Greens always point out at those third reading yeah. speeches. But I wonder if there's any pushback when you point that out. Chris Finlayson used to hate it when he said that, which just made you want to say it even more because he's like so, he could just be so awful and personal. It was just like, oh my God, what's he going to say now? And I think every minister um, of treaty settlements who's getting these deals through does f- genuinely feel that they're doing something good. I mean, they're going through a process with Iwi and and that process matters. It's a relationship process that matters. But that doesn't... They've, they've got to keep un- reminding themselves of the 
boundaries of it, and the boundaries are that it doesn't go into political decision making, and that is what has to happen at some point. I wonder what your advice to future Māori MPs would be <laughs> on, on treaty settlements. Where do we go from here? Oh, I, I always, I came here actually, I really wanted to vote against them. That was my big thing. Like it was such a trauma um, voting for them. I hated mm. voting for them. Because um, they just, they were just this, from the Crown perspective, I think it's the Crown being dirty and I, it's, it's really hard to shake that. Um, and they've never shaken it. Uh, but um, on the very first one, it was a Tadanaki, it was a Tadanaki one, and I really wanted to vote against it. And so the Queer and Komata came to talk to us about it, and they were like, please don't. And I was like, oh, but it, <laughs> this crown is so terrible. Like, it's just appalling what they've done to you. And they're like, <sighs> so, you know. I was good <laughs> for the next 15 years and um, voted for them at the end um, and and we still do um, but it's really hard putting your name to something when you know mm. actually mm. that they're, they're really destructive so the only thing you can do then is just keep on saying mm. they're not full and final they don't you know they are Maori being unbelievably generous um, it undeserved you know, a generosity, showing a generosity that is not deserved by the Crown. Yeah. The treaty being at the centre of the Green Party constitution, mm. were you involved in putting yeah. it there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'd been a member for about six months, I think, uh, and we'd had this sort of session in Auckland, the Greens in Auckland, about what we thought about the treaty and how it would work. And I'd done some work, treaty work um, in other areas before I joined. And so they, the question really was not... Um, whether we should, but how would you? Like, you know, the, honouring the treaty is in our constitution, but um, it wasn't in our charter. And our charter was the fundamental kind of structure, you know, value statement of the of the Green Party. Um, it took two years of uh, working through wording and negotiating and trying to, working with the party so that people felt really confident about what it would mean, like what kind of obligation it would put on us. Um, and then in 2002, in the same... I'd, I was the convener of the Auckland Greens and I'd organised the AGM at Waipapa Marae in Auckland. Um, I was standing, I was putting myself forward as a candidate at that um, AGM for that election and then also working on getting this remit through. Um, and yeah, it got through and they put me on the list and I got to Parliament, so it was overall a pretty successful kind of conference. But um, the party did really work through um, what it meant to recognise fertility, what it meant especially to understand that Māori have a status that is different. Um, as, you know, as a status as, um, you know, tangata tiriti, and that that mm. is meaningful and means different things then. And so that was, you know, it was a really important state for the party to be in. Do you think that when you stood for co-leader against Sue Bradford when Jeanette Fitzsimons stood down, do you think having had that treaty discussion then made it probably a bit more palatable to have a Māori co-leader? I think the party had, had trust in my leadership ability, essentially, um, and that because I had helped lead them through these big treaty issues, 
um, that are really hard for Pikey organisations, really hard, um, that they felt that they could trust me then with other leadership issues. I mean, I think that that was part of it. Um, in the Greens, being able to be a problem solver, being able to bring people together is a really important part of our leadership approach. And that's, that's what our members are always, you know, they're always looking for the person who can do that. Um, and they saw me as being that person because they'd seen me do it a couple of times before. Did it make you feel like a mediator? <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes. It's, it's a, one, of, one of the many skills that a good politician is going to have to have. Um, mediation on some days and just just bossing people around on others. I mean, it's just like, you know, but you have to be able to convince people things and you have to carry their trust. The Greens have often been criticised in past elections for not considering going with national oh, yeah. post-election. Was that ever a serious possibility for the Greens? Not for me when I was in the leadership role. And there's a mountain of evidence to show that it's a really bad idea. I mean, you look at the Irish Greens. I went overseas actually to speak to um, other Green parties about the coalition deals um, to kind of get a clear understanding of it. <laughs> Absolutely, was the, the, the most common thing that they said was, do not go with the Conservatives. Like, whatever you do, that is just going to, it's going to kill you, no matter what. Because the value gap is so great and you have enough risk as a small party with a large party who has similar values. I mean, um, going into government for a small party is enormously risky anyway. That, um, yeah, so nah, it was never going to happen. Hmm. Another thing that I wanted to explore and have a bit of a deep dive into is that so many of the issues that you championed here in this place, we've talked about some of them like child poverty, that there's finally action on them. Uh, one, another one is cannabis. You had a decriminalising cannabis bill yep. in 2009 in the ballot, I think it was. I think so, yeah. And I took it over from Nandu, I think, that one. Mm. Or maybe we had two, but mm. yeah. And that, we're getting progress on that. Yes. Welfare reform. Vote yes in the referendum. Vote yes in the referendum. Glad you got that pitch in. <laughs> uh, welfare reform as well. Um, there's movement on that, especially for single mothers, yep. which we talked about before. With all of that going on, does it kind of feel like you're missing out, though? Well, I do my fair share of yelling at the tally, like <laughs> like everybody else does, when I think that things are not going fast enough or have been dumb. But um, no, that's the whole point, is that you make your contribution and you move on. And the, the, the best signifier that your contribution mattered is that the issues that you were working on continue to progress. Like, if everything you've done continues to grow and evolve in good ways, you know, fast or slow, whatever you might think, then that's a fantastic legacy. I don't, yeah, so no. And I'm also extremely pleased that there's other people with enormous amounts of energy <laughs> doing it too, because, you know, I, it was getting, 15 years was a long time to be here, hmm. and it was a long time to be here without a break of any kind, um, and you can't take one as a list MP. So, um, you know, you've got to, to do this job well, you have to have a real fire in your belly. Mm. Um, and, you know, that dampens over time. Mm. Mm. So did you feel like when it came to 2017 and the end of that election that it really was the time to go? I tried to go in 2015. Um, had my retirement and resignation all lined up, but I got pipped at the post by uh, Russell. <laughs> so it all crashed and burned and I ended up staying on. So, you know, like it... I definitely um, had been thinking that the time was coming hmm. to finish and it was just a question of when. Um, I would have loved to have stayed on and become a minister, but, you know, the 
that that is a secondary consideration at the time anyway to changing the government. So, mm. you know, you just you just work with what you got, you do what you can, and when your time is to go, then it's gone. It's mm. like, and it's, you know, you just move on to something cooler. Yeah, if you could have picked a portfolio, if you had oh, a state, what would it have been? Yeah, social development without question. Yeah, what would you have done? Oh, what were the things at so, the top of the list? Well, um, well, it wouldn't take me a another 12 months to sort out that um, issue with the naming of the father, I can tell you that now. But, <laughs> oh God, how much longer do these families have to wait? Mm. Um, but then, you know, I accept that uh, my agenda would have been considerably more radical than um, the current government's is, and it would have taken a lot to negotiate that through um, even, yeah, through any kind of coalition government. So, you know, you what you want and what you get is all just a kind of matter of pragmatism and, um, you know, and being prepared to take some hits and some concessions when you have to. So, mm -hmm. did that wear you down in the end as well? The fact that the compromises almost always outweigh the wins. I definitely think I would have been an excellent fighter for that portfolio as the minister. Um, and um, could definitely have gotten more gains. But whether, yeah, but, but the cost is the constant fight, I guess. And, um, and that in itself is pretty exhausting too. I don't know. I imagine I would have been fabulous and done everything and like made everybody really happy and <laughs> sold child poverty in the first, you know, 12 months. But I'm sure that that's not true. Well, what other things were at the top of your list? Not just about the solo mothers and naming the father, but what other things? Were oh, just income. I mean, the you know the, the fact is that there is still this kind of bizarre idea that you solve poverty by doing a whole ton of other things except giving poor people more money. Mm. I mean, you know, like it's just it's insane. Mm. Um, the whatever other issues families might have, if they also have no money then nothing else can be resolved. So you sort out their financial situation, make sure they've got enough to live. And then if these other things that need to be sorted out, you deal with that. But it's just, mm. you know, there's still this real um, blame culture and anti-beneficiary kind of culture, you know, that, that just pervades this country and it's totally bizarre. I wonder if you felt like sometimes this place was quite trivial, like with John Key's focus on the flag. Did that feel quite... Were there times Everybody when people felt it. trivial to you? Oh, heaps of times. But this, but this is um, one of the really queer things about this place is that the, the really important things that affect people's lives, you know, I mean, we make enormously critical decisions. Well, we did. I've got to stop talking about it in the mm. present tense. We make enormously important decisions that are critical to whether families have jobs, have homes, you know, really basic stuff that they rely on every single day. 80% of our time was spent just arguing about bollocks, just wasting time. And it was probably the thing that drove me most mad about being here is that in the face of all, everything we knew which was happening outside, that so much time was just spent on just nothing, saying nothing, doing nothing, um, but arguing for arguing's sake because, you know, that's the culture of the place. Um, and I think that you know, some governments will be better at, at taking the issue seriously than others. I think the last national government proved themselves completely useless on that. They were unbelievably superficial. Um, and 
and they had a capacity to do more too. They had the political capital to do more if they wanted to do real things, but they did, chose not to. Um, who knows what's going to happen with this government? You know, they're only two years in. We'll see if that's different. I, I really hope it is. Tell me, what was your proudest achievement? Winning the co-leadership made me enormously proud because it meant that um, uh, the whole green whanau had my back and that, you know, that they wanted to. That's just like, that's an amazing feeling. And, you know, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. Um, being the uh, political person on child poverty and that real, you know, the, the real lives of whanau in terms of housing and stuff, you know, as, as hard work as that was, being relentless about that. I'm really proud of having been relentless about that. Um, yeah, I, I, it's hard, I don't know. During the Greens 2017 campaign launch, Tuday attempted to highlight the punitive approach to beneficiaries, sharing that as a student, she hadn't declared to wins rent from flatmates, so she and daughter Pupu wouldn't have their solo parent benefit reduced. It was a bold move that ultimately cost Tuday her job. I think Māori felt like they were going to have a Minister of Social Development in the form of you, in the form of Matilda <laughs> Tuday, and now post-election they don't have that mm. Minister of Social Development. How does that make you feel? Um, I wanted that too. Mm. I did. And... I'll always be sorry for the failure to deliver that. Mm. Genuinely sorry for that. Nothing was really more important than changing the government. Um, and that included, you know, my... 10-year career as a um, minister. So, you know, you just, in those moments, you do what you need to do and you keep your eye on the prize. Um, and, yeah, I took a big risk. It was worth it. It will always be worth it. But it did come with a cost, and it was the cost of my job. But it was still worth the risk, always. When Pew Pew comes to you <laughs> and she asks yep. you, Mum, what's your legacy? What are you going to tell her? Um, being brave. I was brave. Mm. You know, just... And it's important. People who are here doing this work need to stand up for what they believe in. And if they let that go, um, then they are without integrity, in my opinion. Mm, mm. And you were brave not just for yourself, but you took a stand on behalf of others as well here, didn't you? That's why I was here. Mm. You don't forget who you belong to, and you be brave. Yeah. You've been listening to Mātangi Deo with Morgan Godfrey. This podcast was made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Innovation Fund. Music by Audio Network, sound recording by Craig Mullis, audio design by Reed Audio Limited, edited by Chris Anderton. Matangidea was commissioned by Kay Elmers for RNZ. Shannon Honui Thompson is the Kurahotu Māori. 
Executive Producer, Carmen J. Leonard. Matangi Reo was produced and directed by Annabel Lee Mather and Mihinarangi Forbes.